I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We are a podcast devoted to thinking, particularly serious thinking, because we think a serious church needs serious thinkers. And we want to promote particular virtues as well. Charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think our context sorely needs these. Uh, We find them right there in James 3, verse 17, where we find what the wisdom from above is like. It's peaceable, gentle, kind, all all those sorts of things. So we bundle them up into those four virtues and say, let's create an intellectual culture that prizes those. So with, th- with that said, this is our first ever live Q&A episode. We have Dr. Mitch Chase and Dr. Richard Bracellus with us to discuss the topic of typology and allegory. So Mitch is a pastor at Cosmosdale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He is a, an adjunct professor at Boyce College, and he has a book, 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory. So it, it's prime time uh, candidate for someone to talk about this. And we have Richard Bracellus, who is pastor, founder of Reformed Baptist Academic Press, has written a lot on hermeneutics and such. So I think this is going to be a great discussion. So I'll get to the format in a second, but I just want to plug Mitch's book again. So we're just at the date of this recording, the annual, I guess not the annual, but the the one year anniversary of the publication of the book, I think it's great. The 40 question series is a really nice format for those who are being introduced to various topics. So it's, it's not, I don't think like a trade level book, but it's not like an academic monograph. It's somewhere in the middle there. So most people, whether you're super engaged in these sort of topics or not, can grasp what's going on there. And I think Mitch does a really good job. So that said, the format of this episode is going to be, Mitch, I'm going to give you um, 10, 15, 20 minutes to, to walk through just what is typology, what is allegory on your view, how it might differ or might be the same as the historical understanding of typology and allegory. And then I'm going to give uh, Rich a chance to reply, give some of his thoughts, comments, if he agrees with Mitch, if he has any areas so he seeks clarification. And then from there, since we have a live audience, we'll be accepting questions from the audience. If you want to call on the show, you can do that. If you want to chat us your questions, you can do that too. And we'll be able to have some more interaction that way. So I think we're shooting for around 90 minutes total to allow for sufficient time for discussion, uh, allow for sufficient time for questions to come through. So uh, if you're listening now, you're watching now, uh, go ahead, just be prepared, type in your question as they come. So you don't have to hold it. You can type the question now and I'll get it and we'll, we'll make sure to, to ask it. So this is going to be a great time. I think, I hope, you know, it could, we could totally mess this up since this is live, but I think this is going to be good. So let's go ahead and get started. Actually, let me back up just one second. I, I did totally forget to mention that we've got Brandon Askew uh, here, and we've got Cody Float here, and Jake Stone, and Connor McMakin, and then, of course, me, myself, towards defining. I can't remember if I mentioned my name or not, but that's the crew. So we've got the most of the Hanover House crew here, and yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So without further ado, um, Mitch, I want to go ahead and get started and just kind of softball question a little bit for you to get the start the ball rolling on what is typology what is allegory so maybe i don't know how you want to handle this if you want to talk about how you view typology and allegory how um, your view might be distinct from how thinkers in the past whether it's the apostle paul or obviously you don't want to disagree with him um, or the patristics or medievals or reformation thinkers because i think 
the topic's probably gone over uh, a little bit of a you know growth and and change over time, and then uh, then we can get into some other stuff after that. But I think that might give us a good lay of the land. All right, Jordan. Well, I'm happy to do that, and uh, I'm thankful for you guys uh, being a part of this tonight. It's a joy to be with you, uh, and we're talking about how the Old and New Testaments relate to each other. Uh, so this is a very important subject because our goal as Bible readers uh, ought to be to read faithfully, uh, to read in light of the saints who have gone before us. And uh, in order to do that, uh, we have to think about some of the most important discussions that relate the Old and New Testament together. Uh, and of course, key to that uh, discussion is the subject of typology, uh, the subject of allegory. Uh, they, are, they are certainly major features in the history of interpretation of the Bible. And, um, and what, I, what I think we can recognize as 21st century readers is that these are controversial topics. Uh, not every interpreter is going to come at it the same way. Uh, not every interpreter is going to see the value of these particular methods uh, or even agree with the conclusions that certain interpreters draw, even if they share a sympathy for the method itself. Um, in order to try to get at what I'm doing uh, with reading typologically or allegorically passages of Scripture, I do want to set it in a larger historical context. Um, I'm not trying to do anything clever or unique. Um, and I, I don't want us to try to do things that are clever and unique as interpreters without a historical context shaping um, what, we can what we can find out to be the case that, that we, are, we are in line with instincts and interpreta interpretations that the saints of old have had. So I'm, I'm interested in, in an ancient way of reading the Bible. I'm, I'm interested in old hermeneutics. And, uh, and so even if this is a controversial discussion right now, it's an old way of reading scripture that goes back to the apostles themselves. And arguably, the apostles are learning from Jesus how to read the Bible. Uh, Jesus is reading the Old Testament, <clears throat> which has progressively revealed the redemptive plan of God. And so even within the Old Testament, you have a development of typological and intertextual use that the New Testament picks up on, that Jesus teaches with his apostles, and, uh, and which I think the church at large throughout the great tradition has, uh, has imitated. So what do we mean by reading in these various methods? Typological reading, allegorical reading. A typological reading of Scripture is an effort to connect something earlier in the Bible with something later in the Bible that fulfills it. And there, there seems to be, in common with definitions of typology, a couple key parts. There need to be correspondences, some, some kind of uh, recognition of parallels between this earlier thing and this later idea. And then there needs to be escalation. And that's because as redemptive history unfolds, as progressive revelation unfolds, uh, you see not a linear movement across redemptive history. You see an escalation toward an antitype or the fulfillment of that earlier type. Uh, sometimes we can speak of a type in Scripture as a pattern, uh, and this could take place with the pattern of a character and the character's life or a particular event. 
uh, an institution that becomes ingrained in the life of uh, Israel in earlier scripture. So sometimes a typological reading is a way of seeing an earlier character or an earlier event or an earlier institution or some, some office, something in light of the later Christological development and fulfillment. And, um, and by, by way of example, we could illustrate from Romans 5 that Paul calls Jesus um, a, or, or Paul calls Adam a type of the one to come, that one to come being Jesus. The way Paul reads the Old Testament, the way he reads Genesis, is he sees Adam's actions um, affecting and, 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 yeah, in some way consequential for all who are in him. And in that sense, escalated to Christ, Christ is a greater Adam, a true and greater Adam, the antitype of Adam the type, because Christ's actions are consequential for everyone that is in him, and yet there's not mere, a, there's not mere correspondence with that. We see an escalation because the works of Adam were disobedience and brought death, whereas the works of Jesus bring life and justification. Uh, so there's this escalation in addition to parallels. So I'm trying to illustrate that to read the Bible typologically, we're wanting to see an earlier character or event or thing or institution or office and say, you know what, in the plan of God, this occurs providentially for a reason. This is not like randomly placed but rather the design of God's word uh, shows a movement toward the person and work of Christ. So typological reading is an effort to see these earlier patterns in light of a coming Christological event. And what we're assuming to read typologically is we're assuming that God in his providence has arranged history for these parallels to make sense, for these parallels to be evident obvious. Uh, we're not trying to read imaginative things into the Bible that aren't already there. Uh, instead, typological reading is an invitation to see what the providential hand of God has installed in his word. Uh, we're wanting to recognize that human authors have been inspired by the divine mind of God himself, and he has both inspired and preserved and progressively revealed the coming redemptive work of Jesus through earlier patterns and characters and events. Uh, so when we, when we say, should we read typologically? Uh, well, one of the reasons we want to answer yes is because the Bible is telling one big story leading to Jesus. Uh, so we're eager to read the Old Testament as something that points to him, that anticipates him. We're saying that there are characters that anticipate Jesus. There are events of deliverance and institutions like the tabernacle and the temple. And these things are ordained by God as forward-pointing realities. They are historical, and they are progressively anticipating the antitype who is Christ. So those are a few thoughts about typological reading and trying to lay some of those assumptions out. And, um, and yes, <clears throat> in the historical context of the interpretation in church history, you, you do see interpreters handling the language of typological reading um, differently. Um, and if I could make some broad brush comments, which is always a little risky, I know, when you're dealing with history, we're dealing with thousands of years, 
But at the risk of overstating some things, let me make some broad brush comments that I do think hold true and give us some pegs in the historical board for historical for a typological reading. After the generation of the apostles, the early church did take the literal sense and words of Scripture seriously. They saw that the meaning of the text, the facts of the text, were important, whether you were dealing with the Old Testament or the New Testament. But it was part of their interpretive method to see what they called a spiritual sense in the text as well. If the story of Joshua and the conquest, or Rahab, is forward-pointing to Jesus, they would look at the literal sense of the text and say, there's also a spiritual sense here. We can recognize that canonically, there's a spiritual sense that anticipates Christ. And this is the same thing with the character of Adam or the institution of the tabernacle or the deliverance of the Exodus out of Egypt. And when you progress into the medieval era, they don't lose the idea of a spiritual sense at all. Uh, instead, they further divide the spiritual sense. And uh, this comes to be known uh, with the famous term quadriga. And this refers to the literal sense it's a fourfold method of interpretation, the literal sense being the first of the four senses, the second sense being the allegorical sense, something that is spiritual or figurative. And it's in this particular sense where they would locate anticipating something Christological about Christ. Now, there are other senses, the tropological sense, which emphasizes moral teaching and exhortation, the anagogical sense, which talks about particular hopes that Christians are to glean from the Word of God. But the fourfold sense of Scripture is in continuity with the early church's um, dual, literal, and spiritual senses. It's a way of trying to read the text, not just in its own context with its own initial audience, but to say there's a canonical context informing this as well. In other words, the most, the most accurate way for me to read the book of Genesis, or the most accurate way for me to read the book of Exodus, is not to just stay in those books, or to even stay in the Testament of the, the Old Testament, but rather to think canonically. I will see with greater clarity the meaning and significance of Genesis when I have the whole story in front of me. And so the fourfold sense like the spiritual and literal sense before it, is a way of saying, let's take the text seriously, but let's also recognize that in the divine mind and plan of God, there's more here than even the human authors could fully understand. But through progressive revelation and the event of Christ's advent and ministry and death and resurrection, many things would be made even clearer. When you get to the Reformation era, uh, the Reforma Reformation era is also interested in typological reading. Their writers don't describe it in all the same way. If you read people like Calvin or people like Luther or people like Turretin, they're very concerned with the literal sense of the text, and they're willing to talk about how the Old Testament has Christological significance with characters and institutions. But they would talk about it as if that is a deepening of the literal sense itself. And that's because during the medieval era, there were certainly some wild and misguided uses of figurative readings, conclusions that I would not adopt or affirm. Even if I can sympathize with the instinct to read the Bible canonically and to see interconnections throughout the Testaments. Uh, the Reformers 
were very interested in seeing Christ in the Old Testament and talking about as if that is the literal sense of the text. Not something other than the literal sense, but that the literal sense of the text is both what it meant in its context and how it testified of Jesus. What I've often found then, uh, friends, is that when we discuss things typological, we are often uh, passing each other as Bible interpreters by using different phrasing that belongs to different eras of church history, when really we could all, in fact, be talking about the same thing in terms of substance. Are we interested in seeing that the Old Testament testifies of Jesus? Well, then call that the extension of the literal sense if you want. Call that using the literal and spiritual sense of the text if you want. Or if you like, employ the language of the quadriga. As long as you are looking at the Old Testament and realizing this is a messianic document written to sustain a messianic hope. Uh, so those are, those are some thoughts and a lay of the land to orient us typologically. And uh, also connected to this is a subject of allegory. So let me spend uh, just a few minutes thinking about this subject with you. Uh, I want to make sure I'm covering all that Jordan had asked me to, both with typology and with allegory. And uh, with allegory, we're dealing with something that doesn't require historical correspondences. Allegory is a way of saying there's a deeper meaning to this text, because perhaps there's a symbol that's being invoked, uh, particular uh, colors or other, um, other canonical observations where something earlier on means something deeper. There's, a, there's something beyond the surface area of the text that warrants further investigation and meditation. And an easy genre of scripture to illustrate what we mean by this is to see that in the Old Testament, visions use imagery, symbols, figurative language all the time. And the writer, um, the biblical authors, are not giving the language of the visions so that we will take that language literally. We, we need to know that what we're reading are, is a matrix of symbols in a, in a symbolic universe where certain things need to be interpreted for the meaning of the vision to be made clear. And this is true in parables. This is true in actions that the prophets themselves undertake. There's something deeper in significance to what's going on. You see this not just in the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus tells parables. Jesus acts in certain ways with miracles or even um, uh, particular events like the cleansing of the temple, where we realize, you know what, there is a deeper significance to what is going on here. There are symbols that are involved. Uh, there is perhaps teaching explicitly that informs uh, what's happening. But uh, either way, allegory does have some subtle distinction from typology. And uh, if we read that there are two testaments united as one divine story, an epic of redemption, we will not be surprised that in God's providence, he has embedded patterns and symbols that in the end testify to the person and work of Christ. Should we read the Bible typologically and should we read it allegorically? Yes, we should with thoughtfulness, with care, with attention to textual arguments, but we want to say yes to those questions because that's the way the history of the church and the great tradition has treated scripture. So I've talked for a long time. I'm going to pause now. <laughs> that's good stuff. Thanks, Mitch. And, you know, this being a live episode, we've got our, we tried a live episode last week to try to get prepared. And I feel like there's always 
you know, new surprises and questions as we learn this. So, uh, Rich Barcellus, I think is on. I don't know if he, I know he said he could hear me. So I'm going to see if he has the ability to speak to us or not. If he doesn't, we'll make do. Um, Rich, are you there? Maybe not. That's not a big deal. We'll move on. Um, the Grandpa Barcellus, as he so kindly told me on the phone, um, so we'll have to give him some uh, some heat for that. But Mitch, maybe maybe a good, I guess, pushback question for you is: I think I don't know when I saw this article come out. Um, let's see here. I tweeted it. I did direct message it to you back in September, beginning of September, I guess. So an article with G3 called closing the gate on allegory, uh, by a guy named Chip Thornton. I have no idea who that is, but the point being, um, it, it basically argued that I guess if you try to go this allegory sort of route, you're going to end up, um, with all sorts of abuses when it comes to interpretations of, of different texts. Um, I mean, I think, the the wild one that was always used for me i went to a pretty i guess conservative undergraduate and they they always told us to not do typology to not do allegory that's what the disciples did that's what the apostles uh, did that's not what we do we do grammatical historical so when you look at somebody like augustine this was the test case where he looks at the i guess the parable of the good samaritan and he assigns pretty much everything some sort of meaning and they say look that's bad don't do that um so how would you i guess respond to that oh there's rich uh, welcome um i'll give him a chance i'll give him a chance to to chat in a second mitch you can answer the question i asked and then we'll let rich talk Sure. Well, I appreciate the question, Jordan, because like the article itself raised, there are many people who would be concerned about these hermeneutical methods of reading because they want to be careful with the text. And uh, I can certainly I can certainly resonate with that. I don't want to be not careful with the text. I don't want to be reckless with the text. And um, and you rightly raised the example of Augustine with the Good Samaritan, uh, perhaps even other readings that Augustine himself or other interpreters offered in church history, where we might read their conclusions and think, you know, that's not as obvious to me as an interpreter. That seems like something that is coming subjectively from the reader, but might not be able to be textually demonstrated or argued in order to be repeated by another interpreter. Um, and so I understand the reluctance of people who entertain these notions of reading the Bible typologically or allegorically, or to say that we should imitate what the New Testament authors are, do, are doing. Um, now, of course, my, my immediate thought response here is, well, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If there are abuses allegorically or wild or fanciful offerings of typological readings, we would want to call it as such. We'd want to be able to say, okay, that, that is a reading or an interpretation that I can't follow. But that's not the same thing as saying that the reading itself with the instincts of seeing a symbolic import in a parable or a Christological significance to a character or event in the Old Testament, it's not the same thing as saying that the reading strategy itself is invalid. Um, in, in fact, what I want to insist all Bible interpreters would realize at some point is that the apostles are reading the Old Testament accurately, 
and they're reading the Old Testament the way Jesus has taught them to read the Old Testament. We always want to grow in our understanding of Scripture to be better Bible interpreters, and we have inspired interpreters who have read the Old Testament and in their 27 New Testament documents have given us all sorts of hermeneutical moves to study. Now, if if an interpreter is willing to say that the New Testament authors have misused the Old Testament, well, that's a different conversation altogether. That's a different set of presuppositions to have to deal with. But if we will grant charitably that the New Testament authors are reading the Old Testament correctly, then they are giving us an inspired hermeneutic that we ought to imitate. And let's say hypothetically, a reader says, you know what? But I'm not inspired. I'm not an apostle. Well, okay, we, we want to grant that. No matter how we read the Bible, we are not going to be inspired interpreters. We are not apostolic. However, if I, if I set aside the hermeneutic of Jesus and his apostles to read the Old Testament Christologically, I'm going to replace it with something. It's not as if a vacuum hermeneutically is left. There's going to be some kind of presuppositions I'm operating according to. I'm going to make decisions about the Old Testament texts with some kind of criteria or grid. And I would want us to realize as interpreters, none of us are neutral. None of us are objective. And my my ability to read the Old Testament accurately will be as far as it will faithfully imitate the assumptions of Jesus and the apostles who read the Old Testament, not setting aside their assumptions and replacing it with something else. Um, so yeah, those are a few thoughts there in response, Jordan. We want to be careful with the text, absolutely. Yeah. And I can resonate with concerns for it. And yet we're still left with the hermeneutic of Jesus and his apostles. What are we going to do with it? And I say we should study it. We should study it carefully in community, according to historical context and the great tradition, and then do our level best as interpreters to read faithfully. So he does take aim at you specifically in that article, particularly your, your I guess, interpretation of, of Boaz. And right. he basically says, all these coincidences sound alluring until we ask a simple question. Is this what the human author of Ruth intended to convey? So I guess, wh- how do you reply to that specific sort of thought? Because I think that's probably the most pervasive comment when it comes to this. Well, yeah, I appreciate the example that you're raising because Boaz is not ever named or identified in the New Testament as a type of Christ. Um, And when you read the book of Ruth, um, there's there's nothing about um, Boaz's uh, language where you see the word Messiah or redemptive hope that another character speaks regarding Boaz. So perhaps, uh, like the article Jordan is referring to has suggested, uh, perhaps you're just you know reading into the Ruth story something that you ought not to. Well, I want to take the Ruth story seriously. I want to take it historically, but I also want to recognize that Ruth exists in the canon, and at the end of the book of Ruth is a genealogy leading to David. The book of Ruth contributes to the rising Davidic hope that you see in greater uh, uh, flowering capacity in, in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. So if we locate Ruth canonically in the storyline of Scripture, this is not just a story about a man named Boaz and a woman named Ruth and the interesting way that they came together. Um, There's much more going on in the plan 
uh, in the Old Testament context. And because the Davidic hope is what the book of Ruth is informing, well, this certainly takes on a messianic tone as the Old Testament unfolds when you get to the life of David, which Boaz is an ancestor of. Now, um, if somebody were to suggest Boaz as a type, like I do, a type of Christ, and, and, and a response be given such that they'd say, well, why would we do that when the New Testament doesn't identify Boaz as a type? It doesn't look like you need that reading of Boaz for the book of Ruth to function. Now, I can, I can understand that impulse. Um, I would want to illustrate with the book of Jonah, not to divert the question, but to say, when I read the book of Jonah, and when I read Jonah descending into the boat, and when I read Jonah 2, Jonah uh, recounting how the, the fish delivered him from drowning and death, I don't necessarily read anything overtly messianic there either. Uh, there's not a character that mentions the Messiah. There's not a particular statement from Jonah about the redemptive plan of the Messiah, even though the Davidic hope was alive and well. It is interesting when you see Jesus um, alluding to the book of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. And he uses the book of Jonah as a pattern of descent and ascent. And he says, just like Jonah experienced this, so the Son of Man will experience this. So if, if, if an interpreter is assuming that something explicitly messianic must be mentioned in a character or in a chapter for that reading to work, I would want them to realize Jesus doesn't share that assumption. Jesus recognizes that other Old Testament patterns, which don't have an overt reference to the Messiah or the Davidic hope, in fact contribute to a messianic pattern of suffering and descent or the picture of death and resurrection. Now, if I could just take that as an analogy and apply that to the Boaz story. Here is a man who knows the Lord. Here's a man who keeps the law and is even better uh, than just keeping the law. He surpasses the law with compassion and generosity. And he, in fact, is called a kinsman redeemer. And the redeemer language to that point has been significantly used of God's relationship toward the Israelites whom he delivered through the Exodus. God was their redeemer. And in Ruth chapter 2, Boaz celebrates that Ruth has come under the shadow of God's wings. And then in Ruth chapter 3, Ruth goes to the threshing floor wanting to be under the wings of Boaz. I think that there is a clear play on the idea of Boaz being a representative of God to Ruth, that just as she is going to enter into some sort of covenant agreement with Boaz— a much larger idea has taken place. She is in covenant with Yahweh as a worshiper of the one true God, having left her Moabite idols and ancestry. If you, if you start to look at these parallels, if you start to look at these correspondences, yes, I think the author of the article that was addressing me and what I had written about Boaz, I think he's correct that these parallels are alluring. And I would say, okay, they are alluring, and here's why. 
Here's why they are alluring. They're not just arbitrarily interesting or intriguing. They're actually in the canonical scope of things to be one additional pattern that is forward pointing to Jesus. And I think Greg Beale can be helpful here. He's got a wonderful book called The New Testament Use of the Old. And one of the things that Dr. Beale addresses is unidentified types. How, how can we look at how the New Testament identifies types and offer unidentified types, types like Boaz, or types like Joseph, or types like Isaac. What are we doing when we're offering something like that? I think what Dr. Beale suggests as important criteria is helpful for this whole discussion. If you can show parallels of an unidentified type with an identified type, it strengthens the case that you are looking at something legitimate canonically because you are trying to apply or imitate the same apostolic hermeneutic that identified a type. You're trying to be faithful to that in seeing what else you can identify in the Old Testament. And because of the significance of David and the forward-pointing nature of his ministry or his, uh, his particular role and office, I think that the ancestry of Boaz, his association with Bethlehem, his representation of God as a redeemer toward Ruth, all of these things begin to accumulate with textual significance, textual argument. And that's what we're after. I don't want to settle for just suggesting a type without saying, here's where I want to make my case. Here's some verses and texts to consider. We want to make arguments. We want to try to be textually persuasive so that when someone else is looking at our homework, they're able to see, okay, here's this particular problem you addressed, here's the solution you offered, and here's the work that you've shown. Now, I'm not suggesting that these characters are a problem, but you know, borrowing a math analogy is to say, you want to show your work textually so that somebody can look at your thinking and say, okay, I see how you looked at the book of Ruth and how you preached it in light of Christ. Let me give uh, Dr. Barcelos a chance to jump in now if he'd like. Um, Dr. Barcelos, do you have any opening thoughts on this topic and specifically um, Dr. Chase's book? And Or if you don't have any uh, opening comments, do you have any questions for him? Okay. I, I want to say hello to Mitch. I've ne we've never met. Hi, Rich. I'm so glad to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you too. Um, I couldn't find my copy of the book. I searched for like an hour. couldn't find it. When I got the book, I tore it up. I just tore it up. I'm just I'm kidding. I haven't read the book, but I did read it prior to it becoming a book. <laughs> and uh, I was I was uh, relieved in one sense, because the older I get, the more I think, well, before I die, I want to address some issues. And I wanted I wanted to write something on this subject. And I thought, OK, I don't have to do that. So thank you, Mitch, for your book. Uh, but following up on what you were just doing, you know, uh, types that aren't identified as types, does the, does the New Testament suggest to us that, yes, we should do that? And I think it does. One case, I think, one text that I think is clear is in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That would be the Old Testament. And you can see that in Isaiah 53, for instance. Um, and he was buried, and I think according to the scriptures in, is implied there. So if it is, the burial of the mediator is contained in the Old Testament. And then 
He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament. So if we just take the last one, for instance, and go to the Old Testament and ask the question, where's the third day resurrection of the Messiah taught in the Old Testament? If we can identify that it's taught, um, we, the next question is, through what revelatory medium or uh, genre? And it's not straight predictive prophecy. It's Jonah, I think. I think it's Isaac, Genesis 52. And the old guys would even say Israel, Isaiah, uh, Hosea 6. Hmm. But none of those texts identify, or excuse me, none of those texts are straight prophecies. It's, it's typology. So here we have third day resurrection via typology from these texts, at least two of them are very clear, and the old guys would say even the third, and I think even Calvin did on the Hosea 6, 2 or 3 or 4, I forgot what it is. Um, but there's the New Testament, I think, inviting us to look at, at, to the Old Testament, obviously, for death, burial, and resurrection. And when we do, they're, they're, the only way to understand it is typologically, though they're not identified as types. So, I agree with Mitch on that. One of the things that comes to mind, guys, is a conversation a professor once had uh, with me a few years ago. Um, I'll leave the school he teaches at nameless, but he said to me, typology plays almost no role in how I read the Old Testament. And, um, and that's a pretty striking claim for him to make because he was an Old Testament professor. <laughs> and he said typology plays almost no role. And... Um, and yet, I'm persuaded of what Peter Lightheart and others over the years have said, that the primary way the New Testament reads the Old is typologically. Right. So this is, there's, there's a lot at stake here, not because we can't be you know, good Bible readers in the big picture of things, or even preach faithful sermons. We, we can obviously have brothers and sisters in Christ who differ with us to some degree on these issues. But, but I, I think that the more we affirm the unity of the Testaments and the continuity of the biblical story and progressive revelation, the providence of God, the history of interpretation of the great tradition and the cloud of witnesses, the, the notion of typological reading will not seem as scary to us after a while. It, it'll become second nature and part of how our mind wants to read the Old Testament, because the Old Testament crescendos with glories and wonders to behold when you read it through those lenses. And, uh, and I think that's God's own design, uh, that our hearts be enriched as we behold more of Christ. And so I, I would be grieved if after many years of reading the Old Testament and studying these subjects, we would say something like, typology plays almost no way in how I read the Old Testament. Instead, I would want us as Bible readers to see typology has come to play a very pivotal way in how we see and understand the Old Testament, because we're trying to read it like Jesus and the apostles. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I wonder if the Old Testament professor, I don't need to know who he is, but is steeped in uh, modernism in one sense. Hmm. You know, the specialization Old Testament theologian, New Testament theologian, historical theologian, systematic theologian, tends to isolate um, each department, and they don't learn from the others. You know, I would, uh, I would, with tongue in cheek, I would tell him he needs to assume a Lord uh, Jesus is Lord hermeneutic. <laughs> learn how to read the Bible from the Lord, so we have a lordship hermeneutic. 
and you know that that's kind of you know we laugh but it's true isn't yes. it yes if the if the incarnate son of god you know the mediator according uh, uh, the media uh, or the redeemer's theology because he wasn't tainted with sin when he interprets the old testament and applies it for us it you know red letter edition bibles got something going for him amen you know that's not to deny the inspiration of the written documents by the others, but it's the incarnate Son of God with the Redeemer's theology of the Redeemer in relation to the Old Testament. That's huge. And, and, and Mitch said it, the apostles followed in the footsteps of their Lord, interpreting our Lord. Um, now watch this. They interpreted our Lord in light of his words, acts, and the Old Testament. You know, we usually say we should te teach... Uh, we should interpret the Old Testament in light of Christ. Uh, well, before the New Testament was written, they were interpreting, in one sense, they were interpreting Christ in light of his words, actions, and the Old Testament. Hmm. And, and as you guys know, neither Jesus nor the apostles invented new meanings and thrusted them on old texts. Hmm. Whatever they say the Old Testament taught, however they say it, that's what it meant. And I think it's helpful to see that even non-apostles in the Gospels have this encounter with Jesus where he is taking them uh, through this interpretive grid. And uh, my mind goes to Luke 24, where Cleopas and another man are walking with Jesus. Now, Cleopas is never identified as an apostle. Um, we don't have letters from him in our canon. And yet Jesus told Cleopas that the scriptures anticipated in the Old Testament what the Christ would experience with his suffering and glories. And, uh, you know, here Cleopas is. Cleopas doesn't have the New Testament. Uh, Cleopas is not an apostle. And yet what Cleopas needed to know is that what just happened outside Jerusalem and with the resurrection of Jesus, that these things are anticipated in the Old Testament, and that's his hermeneutic from Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus. You, you, you just used a, um, a phrase there, sufferings and glory, Luke 24. It's in Acts 26. It's someplace else. And then it's in 1 Peter 1. Mm. And, and every single time sufferings and glory is used in the New Testament, either by our Lord or Paul in Acts 26 or Peter in 1 Peter 1, it always refers to the Old Testament and Peter, the, uh, the prophets, so that the prophets of Christ— we're predicting the sufferings and glory of Christ prior to the incarnation of Christ. And so sufferings and glory is a motif we, we learn about in specific words in the New Testament. But I think we, can, we should take that then, go back to the Old Testament. Say, yes. Well, I'm looking for sufferings and glory, however it happens. By the way, Israel suffered and then at least entered into semi-glory for a while. In the promised land, is Israel a type of Christ? I, I think I think Israel is. Joseph, sufferings and glory, at least for a little while. So, so that, that there's again a paradigm from the New Testament that I think we have to take with us when we when we read the Old Testament. And the other thing is this: God is free to act on the earth, and then to raise up a penman, prophet Moses, and describe the act. But the act can have more meaning than meets the eye 
or than even is in the text that Moses pens. In other words, acts can be pregnant with meaning that await further revelation right. to bring out the divine intent that was always there. So this, this question of, you know, what did the human author intend for his uh, culturally conditioned human audience to understand here? That's a very modern way of doing Bible interpretation. Hmm. You know, that sounds like uh, you're, you're assuming that the Bible is to be interpreted like any other book. Hmm. And it seems to be at times, I know in my own experience, I really, I was interpreting the Bible as if God wasn't providentially sovereign and that God didn't do things or do things through people that set the world up, set the scriptures up to teach us something in the future. And so I, was, I, I wasn't allowing divine providence to be a part of my hermeneutic, you know. God can do things that are pregnant with meaning and not tell us the full meaning of it until way later. I love the way you've put it there, Rich, and it makes me think of that First Peter passage you referenced a while ago. And in First Peter 1, uh, Peter tells us that the prophets had written things that they had to inquire about and did not fully understand. So when you think about the human authors themselves of the Old Testament, Peter has something to say about the human authors. They did not, they did not fully understand what they were writing. They but didn't. You, they knew it was looking forward to something, glories that were to come for the days of, uh, of what Christ inaugurated. But he says the human authors wrote without fully understanding. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if, uh, if the prophet uh, Hosea was alive and he witnessed the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ and read the New Testament, I don't think he'd, he'd go, what? No way. <laughs> I think he'd go, wow. Yeah. This is better than I wrote. Amen. One of my favorite uh, illustrations from B.B. Warfield is the illustration of the Old Testament being a room dimly lit with furniture already in place, and that the New Testament, um, the inauguration of Christ's person and work, turned the lights on in the dimly lit room. <clears throat> so what we see in the Old Testament as Christians reading our Christian uh, scripture from Genesis to Revelation is we see what was in the room all the time that progressive Revelation meeting in Christ has now fully illuminated. And um, that's what we're trying to do with typological or allegorical reading. We're trying to see the text in greater light. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to read it illuminated by the person and work of Jesus and by his hermeneutic. We don't want to read the Old Testament pretending like those things haven't happened. We don't want to say, well, let's just turn yes. all the lights off and walk around in the Old Testament like the dimly lit room once we, that once uh, they had. The prophets would say, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> like, don't, yes. don't do that. We, we would want to have seen and understood with illumination all that was dimly lit. Yeah, that's right. Hey, uh, I don't want to monopolize the time, so just shut me up if you have to. But I wasn't on for about a half hour, so I want to get my money's worth. Is that all right? Can I change the subject just slightly and go back to allegory? Uh, yeah. Um, allegory. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, everybody wants to know, well, what are the controls? Um, can we make a distinction between allegory as a genre and allegory as a method of interpreting? And if we can, do we only interpret 
allegorical genre allegorically, or can we just utilize an allegorical hermeneutic in just straight, you know, Old Testament narratives? You see what I'm getting at? I think there's allegory in the scripture as a genre. Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, um, Benjamin Keats said the first allegory in the Bible is Genesis 3.15 because it has a string of metaphor. Hmm. String string of metaphors. And of course, all the older guys said parables are full of allegorical stuff. Yeah. Strings of metaphor, you know. But there, if we... It's one thing to say, well, Song of Solomon uh, is an allegory. So I'm going to interpret it allegorically. It's another thing to interpret Second Kings or whatever allegorically. Mm. You see the distinction? So what, what would you say about that, um, Mitch? Yeah, so I'm thinking that with any allegorical interpretation that someone suggests, I would want to know, is there a particular symbol or cue in the text that's inviting a deeper reading? Is there, is there something that's being um, pressed by the interpreter? And I think of Paul's reading of the Abraham stories, and how in Galatians chapter 4, you have Paul saying, well, a lot more was going on with Abraham and his son of promise and the son of the flesh than meets the eye. You have uh, you know, uh, the, the new uh, covenant that's being um, foreshadowed. You have the, the city above, the Jerusalem that is free uh, being foreshadowed. Now, when you read those narratives with Abraham, you don't necessarily think to yourself, oh, I'm obviously reading allegory. You know, I mean, you're reading historical narrative. So I, yeah. I, do think, I do think, though, that what Paul's doing canonically is recognizing that in this real historical story of this man and his family, God is up to something that would become much clearer later on through what can be symbolized with a son of the promise or a son of the flesh and the spiritual overtones that those things take on. And it might not be as evident immediately when that story is told in Genesis, but by the time you get to later in Israel's history, and um, and then you where you have even uh, like Paul said, not all Israel is Israel. You have people who are of the flesh who do not have the faith of Abraham, even in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, I think Paul is reading that story allegorically, <clears throat> not because it's the same genre as a parable or the same genre as the Song of Solomon. Uh, he seems to discern canonically that there's a symbolic significance to what's going on in this family. Um, now, I think we need to be cautious in, a, in an approach like that, but it is to say, I don't think Paul is looking at Genesis and seeing the same genre as the Song of Solomon. He's, he recognizes the historical uh, merit of those Genesis stories, and yet he still says what he does in, in Galatians 4. It's just a fascinating test case. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to jump in here with a with a question, um, if you don't mind, and then I think we have a couple of audience questions that we can uh, we can get to. But <clears throat> so we uh, we admire the Second London Baptist Confession uh, on this podcast. So this question is related to that. So I want to read um, from paragraph one of chapter um, paragraph nine of chapter one, and it says the infallible rule uh, of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So I guess this is a question for both Mitch and uh, and Rich. So 
can we do what is being uh, described here tonight in, in interpreting multiple senses in a scripture uh, passage and still affirm what it says here in paragraph 9 of chapter 1, particularly when it says the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many but one? How do, how should how should we best understand that? Well, that my my initial take on that language is that they're trying to do what some of the reformers were trying to do, and that is to speak of uh, one primary sense that was both literal and extending to Christ, so that the Christological significance of the Old Testament is within that sense that they're affirming. Uh, in in my judgment, the um, the issue might come down to some semantics, because I think I know what they mean by that language, and I think I'm still trying to honor that and do that as a Bible interpreter by saying, okay, yes, the sense of the text canonically is what it ultimately means. And that means Christologically, um, or that means I read the Old Testament Christologically, and um, and I, I would, I would say that that's what the language in the confession is trying to capture. So knowing, knowing what's intended by the language of that line you read, uh, Brandon, I would be willing to affirm that as long as I understand what they mean by that. I, I don't think practically it will end up being something different. Uh, my answer would be yes. I guess that I think it was yes. Maybe it's no. No, it's yes. My answer is yes. And then two things. Number one, um, if the answer would be no, then not long after the confession um, was written, Benjamin Keats would be a horrible example of a confessional particular Baptist, which leads me to believe, which he's not my favorite particular Baptist, by the way, but um, which, which should caution us. Okay, if Keach is doing this, and by the way, um, one of the particular Baptists, late 8th, 17th century, had a, has a commentary. I think you can find it on the internet. On chapter 1 of the Song of Solomon, and it's straight allegorical. So, you know, there's another example. Whatever 1-9 means, these particular Baptists are doing scripture interpretation that for moderns like us seems to contradict one nine. But that, uh, I used to think that way, you know, 20, 30, maybe 30 years ago. But Dr. Jim Renahan has, has flushed my mind out of out of this modernism thinking, Rich, go back to the context, read the authors of the day. So I did. I actually have a lecture and I think my hermeneutics course on one nine. And I think the language there is dependent upon William Whitaker. I'm not the only one that thinks that. The you know the big fat volume on scripture. If you go read that Whitaker, um, and if you've read just the first few sections of of Aquinas's Summa Theologia, um, you'll realize that what Whitaker's trying to do, Thomas was already trying to do as well, and so Whitaker seems to depend on Thomas a bit. And they're trying to, and Whitaker especially, in light of, in light of uh, some of the reformers, trying to adjust the quadriga. quadriga. I think that's what they're trying to do. Um, and you can go ahead and read those so- sources. But it's helpful to not just as 21st century dudes look back at that and say, well, you know, the particular Baptists that did fanciful exegesis according to a modern scheme. Um, 
denied their confession. You have to read the thing in context. And I think when you do, they're relying on Whitaker, well, the Westminster Confession, and then uh, and then Whitaker, and then Whitaker, even late medieval guys. So it's something that was going on already. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Some people get mad to say, what? The, the great-grandpa of the 1677 Second London Confession, Chapter 1, Paragraph 9, is Thomas Aquinas? What? <laughs> it's a fascinating connection. Matter of fact, the book, Thomas Among the Protestants, there's a chapter in there on Thomas and hermeneutics or the Reformation and Thomas or something like that. And that's where I first saw the connection, then I read it for myself, so... You can read well, that chapter. Know, I've I've got a book here that I'm reading. <laughs> you guys can read that too. I, it's it tells me that Thomas is bad, so don't read him. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you know the most most Thomas I've read is his Gospel of John commentary, and I'm telling you, the in the Gospel of John, the best commentaries on Trinity and Incarnation are Cyril of Alexandria, Augustine. Thomas Aquinas and John Gill. That's excellent. So, period. That's I it. do want to give the, our audience a quick chance to call in if they. I know I've Josh Walk has sent in a question. Garrett sent in the question, and Aaron, you, Pendergrass, you wanted to call in. So if you want to try to call in now. All right. Well, we've got stuff on Twitter too, so we've got all sorts of questions coming in. Um, Aaron, if you want to try to call in, let, we we've never done this, so this will be a first time experience to see if it works and while you're trying to do that um i guess i can i mean josh walk had a question is a lack or refusal of typological reading a precursor to dispensationalism a result of dispensationalism or not related at all um my my thinking on that subject is that dispensationalism uh does require some pretty significant discontinuity across the Old Testament. And I can't help but wonder if that doesn't affect somebody's willingness to see things typologically. Because typology is going to require, with that reading strategy, it's going to require seeing progression and unity and continuity that's going to push against uh, some of those dispensational categories. So if, if somebody is unwilling to see uh, typological reading as a valid strategy, one of the questions I, I typically will respond with is asking about this person's eschatology. Sometimes that can be revealing. And, um, and, I, and I do think I've seen a consistent thing over the years where there is a reluctance there connected to some prior eschatological commitments. Rich, have you seen the same thing? Uh, yeah, I have. You know, I was, I was trained um, in the 1980s. You guys probably weren't born then. Um, at the master's seminary, and um, one of the professors, well, more than one, I think, would have said that uh, a type is a type when it's identified as a type by an infallible word from God through a prophet or through an apostle, something like that. So he also taught this. Uh, he, he realized the the real issue, I think, is uh, is the Old Testament and the New, how Jesus. How our Lord and how his apostles understood the Old Testament. And so uh, in his course on, on this, he's, he's, he's no longer teaching. He's absent from the body and present with the Lord. He, tried to, he dealt with the, the, the New Testament use of the Old. 
And he held a theory that I, th they don't teach it, this at Masters anymore. Um, let me see if I can remember what he called it. Inspired census planure application. Okay, when Jesus or the apostles say this is that, you know, this, what we're now seeing is that, which is recorded in the Old Testament. It wasn't an interpretation or fulfillment necessarily. It was an inspired census planure application. And the reason he held that was because um, the Old Testament, um, well, the, the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And he was an old, old, old school dispensationalist, so he believed that the, uh, the church age was basically not in the Old Testament. So how do you use the Old Testament if we're not in the millennium, you know, if Jesus isn't the, the uh, Israel's king? Um, so he said, well, what has to happen is the Spirit of God illumines their minds to take a principle from an Old Testament text, so they're inspired, and they apply it to a condition that was unforeseen by the prophets. So inspired senses, planure application, ISPA. I think they had a student or two that might have written a um, THM thesis on it. Maybe somebody did doctoral work. I'm not sure, but it died out. Um, but I do think you're right. It's connected to, uh, there's a lens, you know, through which people are reading things. And so we have to go back and question the lens and refocus I think according to the way our Lord and his apostles read the Old Testament. Anyway, if they didn't do it right, who's done it right? You know, if you're not going to use their method, whose method are you going to use? Okay, and now we had a live question from Aaron Pendergrass that was not recorded, unfortunately, for some reason. But I do want to summarize it as best I can from my memory, which is short. But I think Aaron basically asked a question around Calvin's thoughts on allegory and its usage in doctrinal development and such. And now Mitch will answer that. Yeah, I love that question, Aaron. And um, my, my, th my thinking on this um, is that with Calvin and uh, some others who have warned about the use of allegory, they didn't want allegory to be the go-to for how somebody formulated doctrine. But I don't take Calvin to mean you can't employ allegorical significance in a text to supplement or to buttress a particular teaching. And you raised uh, various ecclesiological points. And I would just want to say that we have clear texts, which don't have to be interpreted allegorically, that make very clear doctrinal and central ideas about the church and the ordinances of the church and the offices of the church. And if we were to suggest anything allegorical, we would want that to supplement, but not be pride of place in how we formulate doctrine. Um, did you know... Um... Calvin said some very harsh things against, I think, um, pre-Reformation abuses of allegory. But many scholars have admitted that Calvin recognized al allegory in Scripture. I actually have this in some of my lecture notes, and I can't find the source in Calvin where I read that one time. Um, another thing about Calvin, uh, you know, Reformed people typically have been trained, I was, to think of Calvin as the pinnacle. But he's not the pinnacle. He was a great man, great mind, and all that stuff. But you know that Calvin had some problems with uh, a Christological interpretation of the Old Testament. If you compare him with the, the early church, and I think, of course, Luther, 
and I think the 17th century guys. Calvin was a bit reluctant at times to take classical texts from the Old Testament that supported uh, Trinity stuff and some incarnation stuff. And and there's actually guys that have written books on it. I think it's Oxford University Press has a book, <laughs> The Judaizing Calvin. <laughs> and so what happened in, in Geneva is, uh, is, I don't know if it was during Calvin's specific time or not. I, I actually think he was alive. But students were coming out, out of there with a very literal wooden hermeneutic, and they weren't solid on their Trinitarianism. So some of the 16th century and late 16th century anti-Trinitarians came out of that womb. And Lutherans fought against it. Of course, Roman Catholics said, see, I told you. Uh, but it's very fascinating. There's a book by, uh, well, Mitch might know the guy at Southern, uh, who's it's got the same name as Doug Wilson's son-in-law. Oh, he's uh, at Southeastern, uh, Benjamin Merkel. Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, ben, Benjamin Merkel, not the Southern guy, but the Doug Wilson's son-in-law, his pu published dissertation deals with some of this stuff. It's very fascinating, which, you know, when I read it, I'm going, wow, Calvin's not as, you know, as reliable on everything like I, like I used to think. And I think part of the reason is, you know, Calvin was a trained lawyer. Some of the 17th century guys, these guys were better educated early on than Calvin for what Calvin ended up doing. So I don't want to be too hard on Calvin. But So we, we've got a question uh, from Nathaniel Martin, and I actually had a similar question, so I guess I'll ask his and then follow up with some comments of my own. But uh, So Nathaniel says, uh, since Dr. Chase is a pastor as well as a professor, I'd like to ask about preaching. Given that we can no longer assume biblical literacy by many congregants, how do we wisely incorporate typology and allegory into the preaching event. <clears throat> and I was actually thinking about preaching myself earlier when you were talking about how we um, maybe are already doing this, but we just have different labels for it and we call it different things. Because when I think about the four senses, you know, literal, allegorical, tropological, anagogical, I think sometimes maybe just in our modern uh, way of talking, we just call some of that application. Whereas in previous centuries, they would have just called that a different sense or a different meaning. So um, I don't know if maybe that's part of the answer is, is to say that maybe we're already doing it. We just call it something different. But what would you say to, to his question about uh, incorporating it in preaching? I think one of the helpful articles I've read over the years is a chapter in a book that Peter Lightheart wrote this particular chapter uh, and it's on the quadriga, and I forget the full title of it, but it's in the form of a question. And it's arguing that very thing, Brandon, that preachers are using the quadriga categories all the time without calling it. Yes, I agree. At, amen. And I and I and I think that in that sense, we we want to recognize that preaching has always functioned well by attending to these notions. Call it, you know, call it under different labels if the medieval quadriga concerns you. But at the same time, when we're applying the text and when we're holding forth Christ to the listener, we're engaging in that kind of treatment uh, of the text. And um, I have found, truthfully, that the preaching of the Word excites the listeners 
as they peer into the Old Testament and see how it anticipates Christ. Um, and my mind goes again to that road of Emmaus conversation, where after um, Jesus has spoken with these people, uh, one of them says, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And, and I would say that if the purpose of the Old Testament is to bear witness to Christ— as far as we are able to show faithfully in preaching how the Old Testament bears witness to Christ, one of the effects the Lord is pleased to grant to his listeners is for their hearts to be warmed within them as they see and rejoice and delight in this single story, in this redemptive epic. So I find that it's very useful in preaching, and I have found that it can strengthen the confidence of listeners in the Bible itself because you're showing that this is a heaven-given book. This is not merely the creative, clever whims of people that have put this together, but you can show through typological or symbolic significance of texts the careful providential work of God across millennia, and that will strengthen the confidence of people in the trustworthiness and inspiration of the Bible. And I'm eager to promote that and not do anything to undermine that. Yeah. Hey, can, can I just chime in real, well, hopefully briefly, on, on application? You know, I don't know of any preacher that says, okay, I've expounded the written word of God, the inspired, infallible, inerrant scripture. Now I'm going to give you application. It's divorced from what God intended. It's my thoughts on the text. You know, nobody says that, okay? Well, they shouldn't. Um if you're going to say, okay, now the application, which I used to, I don't do that anymore. If I have a section in my sermon at the end, uh, we call it contemplation. And what I mean by that is thinking deeper about the entailments of our text. And um, I, I think most preachers already do, good preachers, they already do that. They might call it application. But if you ask them, okay, do you think these applications are from you or from God? And if they say you, then I'm going to say, why, why do you preach God's word and your word? So that me means we need to be careful that if we're preaching applications, they better be entailed from the proclamation. And the next question is, okay, if they are necessary entailments from the exposition, from the exposition, did God intend those entailments? And if he did... Now, we can preach it with authority. If, uh, obviously, if he didn't, we sh I don't think we should be preaching them. So that means I'll never preach on marriage and say, therefore, in order to have a good marriage, when you come home from work, you have to have a 15-minute couch time. That, that's going too far, I think. Illustrations and examples, I, I, you know, we can do that. But we need to be very careful as preachers because some people take even our illustrations and examples and go, see, the pastor said it. Therefore, God said it, you know. So this application thing, I think we need to be need to be very careful and make sure, you know, we're drawing necessary inferences about God, about Christ, about salvation, about the Christian life. Um, you know, even from narratives in the Old Testament. David's adultery, if you're going to preach through that, are you going to warn people? 
Mitch is. And why would Mitch do that? Um, I think this is one of the reasons for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. That perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So I think the Bible itself tells us when you read the Old Testament, uh, you can read it ethically and draw out you know, moral implications for your people. And that's, that's fine. That doesn't mean you're a moralizer. Uh, but but that's all. If that's all you do with the narratives, I, that, that's going to be death for your congregation. Though, I was talking with some students about First uh, John three earlier this week, and we were talking about how John says, "Don't be like Cain," and uh, and it's it's just this fascinating exhortation because he's he wait, killed his brother. But but Genesis four doesn't say don't be exactly like Cain. right. And I, and I think what, what Rich is so helpful to point out here is we are legitimately using the Old Testament when we can discern good moral examples, not because that's how we're reading the Old Testament exhaustively, but the Old Testament does have characters that are warnings to us or things to commend uh, as behavior and virtue for us. That's right. And what's that called in Before the Reformation? In the quadriga? Oh, I see what you mean. Like, so that, like the tropological sense of the moral exhortation. Yeah. 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 There you go. There you go. From a, nar- from a narrative. From narratives. You're saying it's, we're justified in doing that from narratives that don't I think Garrett, one uh, way Garrett Walden had a question. They just tell a story. Right. He says, uh, I think, does I think every text right. have all four meanings from the quadriga or just some particularly uh, messianic text or forward-looking text? So does every text have all four meanings from the quadriga is really the essence of his question. Um, so, so I think that by text, I'm, I'm assuming he doesn't mean an individual verse. Does every individual verse have those four senses? Okay, I would not try to press that. I would want to say, though, that in a passage of Scripture, in a, in a bounded text, a pericope, a, a sermon-preaching passage, um, I want to ask those sorts of questions. I want to ask, you know, what, what is the plain and surface sense of this text? What are the facts of the text? It's historical context. And then, how does this fit in the redemptive story of Christ? How does this in some way expect him or declare him or show my need for Christ? And is there anything in this that would give me directive in my discipleship? Is there an explicit or even implied um, exhortation, something that I ought to be warned against or exhorted to follow? And um, how does this help me think about the future in the anagogical sense? Uh, is there something in this passage that will take me beyond the present moment? So if, if, I'm, if I'm thinking about a preaching text, I don't think he means probably just a verse, but rather a passage of scripture. Those are the sorts of questions I want to ask. Now, I don't think you have to try to fit all of that in every sermon. In other words, like I've got to make sure that I give a full answer to each of these senses of the text. But I, but I think that you'll find ways that the text might more prominently testify of something Christological uh, or might more prominently give certain exhortations or prohibitions. And you might be able to be sensitive to the actual content of the passage to know what to put 
perhaps foremost uh, in your sermon. But I think that you should speak of Christ, you should speak of discipleship in the Christian life, and uh, and try to see how the text bears upon those topics. Uh, so so every every passage we preach, we ought to be asking those kinds of questions. Uh, because that's what's going to help our people bring greater cl- bring them greater clarity about the Christian life, but especially about God's plan in Christ that that text helps to support. Hey, hey, Mitch, uh, yeah. I, I want to put something on you and see see if you can do this a little test for you. Okay. Let let there be light. Apply the quadriga to that. Yeah. So as I think about let there be light. The immediate sense, of course, is the creation account with God speaking and bringing into existence, right? Yep. But but Christologically, Paul is going to use this language in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, yeah, that the right. God who said, let there be light, made his light shine into our hearts. And so the, the deeper significance of the speaking God who historically makes light in Genesis 1 is that there is this redemptive plan where the illumined hearts of sinners uh, will be caught up in this gospel life that is all about the sun. And yet, when we think about light and uh, how the Christian life uh, as we follow the light of the world, is a walking in the light. Walking the God who has shed light abroad in our hearts has brought us to a path, a realm of light from darkness to light. Um, and we now are those who walk in the light. The God who speaks in Genesis 1 has brought life to our hearts, and there are moral implications as a result of that true life. Now, what about my future? Well, the God who in the beginning said, let there be light, will one day say, let all things be made new. And so this God who speaks creation is going to sum all things up in Christ. And I'm caught in the middle of this great drama, right? Heading to that celestial city where God is the light himself, according to Revelation 21 and 22. So that's a a brief way of trying to sketch out how we can affirm something in Genesis 1 and try to take it in a canonical direction to speak of Christ and our hope. All right, you passed the test. Okay, good. Okay, good. (laughs) I am the light of the world. Amen. And then God's shining light in our dark souls, and then walk as children as light, and then the light and glory of the eternal state is God himself. So you did it. Amen. Jordan, Jordan, are you lurking back there somewhere? No, I'm lurking. I Okay. If if you guys are watching right now, I've got my almost three year old who's been hanging out with me because he's been protesting sleep, but he's currently reading a book with me, so it's not a big deal. Um, let's see here. I mean, looking through the Aquinas. What's that? Is he reading Aquinas? Uh, you know, he he's not. He did he did peruse through Jeff Johnson's book, and he didn't make it very far before he closed it. <laughs> Oh goodness! <laughs> um, that said, let's see here. Are there? Do you guys, Cody? I mean, what questions or thoughts do you have? You're, you know, you're an exegesis guy. Um, you you've read what Don Collett's book? Is there questions and thoughts that you have related to the topic before we wrap up? What's Cody's last name? It's it's me, Rich Cody Float. <laughs> Who's Cody? Cody Float. Oh, yeah. hey, hello. Hey, brother. I know, I know you. Yeah. Uh, he, know he only knows stuff about Zechariah. That's that's the other Cody. Oh, 
Oops, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I do do minor problems, though. But, um, yeah, I don't know if I have any questions because I feel like both Mitch and Rich have been really spot on tonight um, with, with what they've explained and put out there. Um, I do have a comment, though, just to make – I think it's interesting. So I've spent the last, like, six months of my life reading – uh, almost nothing but redactional critical stuff, and um, the comments, the comments that you both brothers have made about modernism, I think, is really insightful because you read a lot of this redactional critical stuff. Like I'm reading that with the Book of the Twelve, and it's so often, you know, a restricting of the human author really from having any sort of complex thought. Right, every change in vocabulary indicates a different author or a different redactor. They can't, or in order for there to be an illusion, there has to be a literal like five you know word pull from another book in order for it to be genuine, and all these other things. And the thought that I constantly come back to after reading article after article of that is, well, not only do a lot of modern scholars have a very, I think, poor view of what authors were capable of. Back, you know, thousands, I think it's almost like a very progressivist understanding of, well, we can have those thoughts because we are, we are modern, you know, we understand more, we think we have a better grasp of the world. Um, But not only that, but I think it says something, frankly, about what we believe about the spirit of God. You know, what do we really believe that the spirit of God could have inspired these men to see not only the, the scriptures they had, in their possession, let's say the Old Testament scripts they had in their possession, but just to see the world around them, what God was doing historically, providentially before their eyes, and to understand those things in light of this promised Messiah, right? And to be able to explain that well, utilizing the patterns and the verbiage and what have you from the scriptures they had. And that's so often the thought I come back to is a lot of a lot of modern modern scholars, frankly, just truncate the power of the spirit in the lives of the men who are authoring, particularly I think about the Old Testament. Um, and it's such a good thought to come back to is that like we have a spirit, we have a God who was able and who did um, breathe scripture out by opening these authors' eyes to see what was happening right before them and to understand it um, well and to understand it as a revelation of the triune God and what that triune God was going to do redemptively in history. Yeah, and I think think, uh, interpreting the Bible the way we've been discussing it tonight, you know, it has, and Mitch kind of alluded to this earlier, it has an apologetic value to it because, you know, it strengthens, um, you know, the faith of, of the you know if you're preaching in this way it strengthens the faith of of your hearers when they see all of these um connections um across the canon whether it be types or or whatever else um you know it it makes me have greater faith in the in the truth of the scriptures and i think you know if we can show these connections to maybe somebody who's more skeptical as well um i do think it has apologetic value there as well so um i think it's a good thing for us to be doing yeah, I think our what that makes me think of, Brandon, is how even the people in our pews are going to have assumptions about the Bible, even if they're unstated assumptions about the Bible. And what we want to do 
in our handling of the text, our preaching of the text, and our typological reading of the text, is we want to model healthy and true assumptions about the nature of the Bible. And that, Lord willing, over time, those assumptions will be adopted by the people who sit under the authoritative teaching of the Word. And that they will come to see the Bible the way the Bible presents itself, which is not like any other book. Um, one of Rich's expressions earlier in one of the answers he was giving, it, he used this language about uh, how people will often treat the Bible and read it like any other book. That's such an important point to meditate on, because what Cody is uh, frustrated at reading so much of, no doubt is written by people who who share a, a, a posture toward the Bible like they would approach it as any other book they're reading. And the supernatural element of the scriptures, these presuppositions are so crucial, there's no typological or allegorical reading without them. How could there be? Uh, typological reading collapses if you remove certain presuppositions about the Bible. And so I, I, I do think the apologetic value is there, the need to model for our people a healthy understanding of the presuppositions that the saints of old have had. We're not trying to do something clever and new. We're trying to have ancient reading methods that honor Jesus and that honor the scriptures that Jesus said were about him. Yeah, and I, I would just point in and just say to think about what we've been talking about tonight in Trinitarian fashion. It should not surprise us that the Father, um, by the Spirit, would, through written revelation, testify to his word the Son, um, in all of redemptive history penned for us in the scriptures. Um, yeah, and it's, it's I think for, for, for me, as I think about this topic, I always just come back to the importance of the divine author. It's easy to, you know, get to all sorts of discussions like we've mentioned tonight about, you know, what could the human author have intended and kind of parsing that, what are the boundaries of that? But when you realize that, um, there's a divine author behind that man providentially weaving his heart, mind, and soul to, um, to, to write words of Christ for us. Um, that, that affects everything that every, every way that we read scripture, every way that we teach it, every way that we preach it. Um, and just realizing that we have an entire canon that has been breathed out by the divine author to testify to Christ by the Spirit. Um, and our teaching and preaching has to reflect that. Um, yep. And people will often say, like, how do, we, how do we get started with something like this? And I think Jim Hamilton's answer over the years has stuck with me uh, so deeply, where he will say what often can sound like a simplistic answer to people wanting to grow deeper with interconnections throughout the Bible, but he will say, you don't need to just read books about the Bible. You need to sit down with the Bible, and you need to read large chunks of the Bible, and you need to read slowly, and you need to read continually, and you need to read and reread and reread. And the Lord blesses that, that deepening and spiraling into familiar waters where the reservoir of text is deepening, textual sensitivity increases. Um, I, I think Dr. Hamilton's advice is, is simple but profound. There's really no other way to ingrain that within us but to be men and women of the Word deeply, consistently, and over the long haul.
you know, the, the old older writers reformed and then going back all the way to Augustine. If you ask them the question, and I do when I read their books uh, about scripture interpretation, uh, how do you interpret the Bible? One of the first answers is read it. And, uh, you know, Spurgeon said our blood needs to be bibbling. Yeah, uh, he's right, because. Um, here's an example. I have a friend, pastor friend who reads the Bible all the way through every year in like a two week period. And about five years ago, he, he was texting me. We text often. He said, Rich, I'm starting to see connections in the language of the prophets with the Psalms and the Pentateuch. Mm. It's always been there. Okay. But I never made the connections until, you know, these speed reads. And then he's reformed his own hermeneutic. And that's, you know, that's an example of somebody who sees the contours of revelation, terminology, phrases, concepts that are picked up by later writers. They might have put them in different words, but it's the same concept in different words. That's wonderful to see that. And you don't see that if you don't believe in divine inspiration. That's right. That's why the, the Enlightenment, as far as its effect on, on interpreting the Bible, was so disastrous because you know, they're just historicists in terms of you know, Scripture as a document. It's just to be interpreted as a historical document. And the real meaning is not the text. It's the guys and the issues behind the text, which, which is fascinating because if you think about background material, you know, um, I'm not against reading background material and utilizing it to help me. But most background material we have is uh, secondary literature that quotes ancient documents that have terrible manuscript witness compared to scripture itself, you know? And often, you know, we're relying upon a scholar who's interpreting a scholar's quotation of an ancient text that, that has a terrible, you know, family history and then we make a big deal about it, you know. Hmm. Um, I think it's dangerous to overdo background material. And I think the cause of that is is grammatical, historical hermeneutic that stays in the history, stays in history and doesn't do theology. Yeah, that's good. Well, I, I know we're over the time we had committed to our audience. And I know uh, I want to get everybody back to bed. I mean, I've got I've got to put him to bed. He's. If you're here watching this, he's showing everybody his car. So I'm, I, they all think they're awesome. Um, he's, <laughs> he will literally sleep in peace. He, he loves them so much. But uh, I want to give a huge thank you to both uh, Mitch and Rich for coming on and talking with us. I think this has been a lot of fun, uh, really helpful. And thanks to everybody who tuned in as well and sent in some questions. Um, hopefully they, they helped clarify for you um some of the things that you've thought about when it comes to this and um yeah i think this has been a lot of fun so thanks everybody for tuning in uh to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and thanks for bearing with us and our hiccups for our first ever live q a um, if we do these in the future hopefully we'll we'll iron those kinks out but i think this went pretty well overall so um i think it's been a positive experience so thanks for listening and we'll we'll talk to you guys soon
Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio.